great way to start our time of worship today with our second baptism of the day. What a beautiful picture of death to life, from darkness to light. Actually, what we've been talking about in the series uh, that we're in in the first letter of John. Um, if you are new or newer to New Life, either in the room, uh, watching online, we haven't met yet. My name is Chris. So glad that you're uh, here with us. This morning, we're going to be back in our Love and Light message series through the first letter of John. And if you are new to New Life, one of the things that you should know about John is that he loves to use the art of contrast in his writing. So you maybe have already picked up on that light versus darkness, life versus death, active faith versus dead faith, right? He paints in contrast uh, so that we might understand a deep spiritual truth better. I think even in our modern kind of day culture, we understand the art of, of contrast. And so uh, you guys help me out, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a word, and you guys give me the opposite of that word, okay? So this is audience particip participation time, all right? You ready? Hot. Summer. Republicans. Be careful. Men. Women. Duke basketball. Careful, careful. <laughs> Young, old, black, white. Like you, you get the idea, the art of contrast, right? And so far, what the Apostle John has been doing up to this point in the letter is he's giving us God as light in contrast to the darkness of the world. So that's been kind of the first half of the letter, God as light in contrast to the darkness of the world. Now this morning, he's going to start to shift into the second major kind of section of the letter where we're going to move away from God as light to God as love, right? And so it's been all God as light up to this point. Now we're shifting into a new part of the letter, God as love. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Start in verse 11. By God's grace, we'll uh, finish chapter 3. As you find your way there, let's pause and, and pray. Ask for the Lord's help. God, we uh, come to you. We are all uh, uh, pilgrims on the sojourn, on the journey of life. Uh, for some of us, that, that pathway has been uh, riddled with difficult things this week, challenges, losses, pain, suffering, frustration. Uh, for others of us, perhaps it's been uh, an even better week, but in any case, God, I think we would all have to admit that our, our minds, our thoughts can drift easily, our heart's affections can fade towards other things outside of you. And so I ask, God, by your power, by the presence of your spirit through your word, that you would allow us to lay all of those things down just for the next 30, 35 minutes or so so that we might hear a word from you that would impact our lives this week. God, we need you. And so would you show up now through these ancient words? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our souls? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, since we're gonna be talking about uh, love today, I got to thinking about this week as I was doing some studying, uh, famous love songs Famous love songs. Now, we just had uh, Valentine's Day uh, a few days ago, so maybe some of you are still kind of in the, the, the height of the haze of love or the days of love. Maybe you had a really romantic date with, uh, with your boo this week. And here, but here, here's what I bet. I bet that most of us, when we hear the word love, when we think of the word love, what comes to our mind is kind of a, a, a mushy, sentimental, uh, kind of warm and fuzzy feeling, Right? Butterflies in the tummy when, when your boo walks in the room looking fine or warm feelings of affection when your man sweeps you off your feet and takes you to a candlelit dinner on the mountainside as you watch the sun set, right? Something like that. Love. 
And so kind of, kind of thinking back to the love uh, songs this week, I asked uh, Mike, our, our worship pastor, and uh, Emily, our student ministry intern, to give me the cringiest love songs they could, they could think of, right? They came up with, with a long list, so I spent far too much time listening to disgusting songs this week about love. But I, I just want to share one with you, and, and just I want to encourage you to go ahead and brace yourself, right? It's, it's coming. This is, I'm going to read you the lyrics of Groovy Kind of Love by Phil Collins. We got any Phil Collins fans? Raise, raise your hand. Go ahead and age yourself. <laughs> Phil, Phil Collins. All right. So we had a few in the 915 as well that were fans, and I just want to say shame on you. All right, now, here are the lyrics to a groovy kind of love. And this is, again, this is reflective, I think, of our culture's view of love. All right? So here he goes. Dr. Phil says, when I'm feeling blue, all I have to do is take a look at you. Mm. <laughs> then I'm not so blue. When you're close to me, I can feel your heartbeat. <laughs> My favorite line. I can hear you breathing in my ear. <laughs> Bro, why are you breathing in my ear? <laughs> Back off, man. Breathing in my ear. Baby, you and me got that groovy kind of love. When I kiss your lips, ooh, I start to shiver. <laughs> I think that's a disease. Go to a doctor. I can't control the quivering inside. Wouldn't you agree, baby, you and me, we got that groovy kind of love. When I'm in your arms, nothing seems to matter. My whole world could shatter, and I don't even care. Baby, you and me got that groovy kind of love. We got that groovy kind of love. We got that groovy kind of love. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We got that groovy. We got that groovy kind of love. And I just want to say, that is not what the Apostle John is going to be talking about today in chapter 3. All right? That is not the kind of love we're aiming at uh, together this morning. That is some sort of mental disorder, I believe. John wants us to see a deeper and more meaningful version of what love is that flows from God as the source of love through his followers to the world uh, around us. And he wants to help us, I think, beginning by giving us the opposite, like we just talked about, the contrast of what true love is. So he's going to start by giving us a picture of hatred, so that we might truly understand what authentic love is. Are you ready? First John chapter 3, starting verse 11. If you don't have your Bibles on the screens for you, this is what the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend in the world, says. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. In other words, I'm not telling you anything new. You've heard this from Jesus since you began to follow him. That we should love one another. Right? Sounds a lot like Jesus because he's just giving us what he heard his friend Jesus teach so often that we should love one another. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain. Okay, so we're getting introduced to a, a new character that we haven't been introduced to in this letter so far. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So John goes, hey, listen, I want to show you what love is by first showing you what hate is. And then John hyperlinks us back to the Old Testament, Old Testament in Genesis chapter 4 to the story of Cain. Now, some of you are familiar with the story of Cain in Genesis 4. Others of you uh, may not be. And if you're not, let me just give you a quick recap. Adam and Eve, the first human beings after the fall in the garden, have two boys, Cain and Abel. Now, Cain worked the ground. He was a farmer. His brother Abel was a shepherd, right? He tended the uh, livestock. 
And when it came time for the brothers to give a, an offering to the Lord, a sacrifice to uh, God, the Lord was pleased, Genesis 4 tells us, with Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept the sacrifice of Cain. Now, why is that? Why would he accept one sacrifice from one brother but not the other offering from the other brother? Some have speculated that perhaps it was because Abel used an animal sacrifice. Cain offered produce like, hey, hey, Lord, here's some lettuce. And God was like, I'm not a vegetarian. Get the kale salad out of my face. Bring me a steak and we'll talk. I don't think that's actually what happened there. I think what happened seems to me as I studied Genesis 4 this week is that God accepted Abel's offering because he gave out of his first and his best. He didn't give out of his leftovers. He didn't give his crumbs, and it seems that Cain did. I think that's a good lesson even for us as modern-day followers of Jesus, that we should give to the Lord from our first fruits, from our first and our best, not the leftovers, not the crumbs of our life. And that doesn't just apply to money, although it certainly does apply to our money. I think it applies to our entire lives. Right? Our, our passion, our energy, our times, our, our time, our talent, all of it. And so God was pleased with the one brother. He was not pleased with the other brother. And Cain is furious, Genesis 4 tells us. He's so angry that the Lord has accepted his brother's sacrifice but rejected his. He is jealous of his brother Abel. His anger then begins to turn into hatred. And then the whole scene culminates out in a field where he tricks his brother, takes him into the field, and murders his own brother in cold blood. And then kind of the climax of the scene is God shows up and he goes, hey, Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? And Cain responds with another question to the Lord, and this is a question that I think has reverberated throughout time and history. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, God, why are you asking me? Is it my responsibility to watch out for my brother? Now, what's the answer to that if you're a follower of Christ this morning? The answer is yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And then God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground and you are now gonna walk in a curse the rest of your life. Now, I want you to notice this. Hate originates not with Cain in Genesis chapter four, not with the first murder in the garden or outside of the garden, but with, if according to John, Satan himself. Hatred begins with Satan himself. Now you notice the verse that we just read a moment ago. John says that Cain was of the evil one. Who's he referring to there? He's referring to our enemy, the devil, Satan. I want you to see what Jesus says about this in John chapter 8. This will be on the screens for you. He speaks to some Pharisees, some religious people that didn't have a relationship with God. They just knew a lot of religious facts. And this is what he says to them. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I think it's interesting that both Jesus and John seem to categorize every person that's ever lived and whoever will live into two broad categories. You're either a son of God or the son of the devil. There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground, does there? You're either a son of God or you're a son of the evil one. And John goes, hey, listen, don't be like Cain. Because Cain was not a child of God. He was a child of the devil. He was full of anger, full of hatred and murder, just like his spiritual father, the devil. So John is showing us the opposite of love, which is hatred, so that we could then begin to understand what authentic love actually looks like. 
Now pick it up in verse 13. He carries on the thought. He says this, Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. Now John is saying, hey, listen, don't, don't be surprised when the spiritual descendants of Cain hate you. When the world hates you, I don't want you to be surprised. Again, he's just repeating the words of his best friend, Jesus, who said, listen, if they hate me, Jesus said this, if they hate me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Don't be surprised by that when it happens, but Jesus gives us a promise. He goes, take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, I think one of the biggest issues as we look across the landscape of the modern-day American church, I'm not talking about new life necessarily, but I'm just I'm saying the church at large, kind of broadly speaking, one of the biggest issues today is I feel like many in the church are desperately seeking the world's approval. Have you noticed that? Desperately seeking the world's approval. So here's kind of what it looks like. Hey, if you don't like us, world, let, a, let, let, us, let us change our doctrine on this one thing over here that offends you. Do you love us now? No, you don't love us now. Okay, well, let, let's go back. Let's, let's compromise on this Christian conviction over here that believers have followed for 2,000 years. We're, we're going to just set that aside. Do you love us now, world? No, you don't love us. Okay, let's, let's go back. Let's water down this doctrine over here, what the Bible says over here. Do you love us now? And it's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome, like, boosh, do you love me now? Boosh, do you love me now? We just keep coming back desperate for the world to accept us and love us, desperate for the spiritual sons and daughters of Cain to love us when Jesus has told us to expect that the world would hate us. And then what John is saying to us is, no, 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 guys, we, we learn to love while being hated. We, we learn to love. Our call is not to become loved by the world. We, 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 we've been promised that we're going to be hated, misunderstood, mistreated by the world. Our call is to love in the midst of that. But I want you to hear me say this clearly, church. Becoming like the world in order to reach the world is not the answer in the church today. Becoming like the world in order to reach the world is not the answer. Pointing them to Jesus is the answer. And when we're hated, when we're reviled, and we will be hated and reviled, when we're misunderstood by our classmates at school, our neighbors in our neighborhood, our apartment complex, our friends at work, whatever it is, we love in return. That's the call. While we're hated, we learn to love. Verse 14, he continues. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do you know that you're a Christian, have you, that you've come out of death into life? How do you know? He says, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. How do you know you're really a Christian? According to John, he says, it's because you love your brothers and sisters of the faith in Christ. You're not like Cain who hated his brother. And I want you to hear me say this, church, love for one another as followers of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the family of Jesus is a key marker of those who actually know and have been transformed by the love of Jesus. Now, you may kind of read this, especially as we think back to, to Genesis 4 and how Cain murdered his Abel. And you, may, you may be thinking in your mind like, hey, great, this sermon is not for me. This doesn't apply to me. I ain't never murdered anybody, thought about it a few times, but I never actually did it, right? That one time on I-26 when the dude with jersey plates flipped me off, I thought about it for just a moment, but I didn't actually do it. Chris, that's actually one of the Ten Commandments that I, I feel really good about, right? Don't ask me about any of the other ones, but that one I'm nailing, right? That would be great except for the fact that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, even if you've hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty. 
And John takes that same thought and fleshes it out for us in verse 15. He says this, everyone, this is sobering, everyone who hates his brother is a what? It's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Ouch. So it's not just about the outward act of murder. It's the inward position of our hearts that Jesus is after. So here's the big idea. Let me go ahead and give you the big idea of the whole deal. This is truth number one on the screens for you. No love equals no life. That's the whole point of this chapter. No love equals no life. No love for one another as spiritual siblings. No love in Christ. No life in Christ. No love for your brother or sister. John would say you are spiritually dead. No matter how often you go to church, no matter how much you read your Bible, no matter how much you listen to worship songs in the car on the way to work or school, See, John is contrasting spiritual life and spiritual death, hate with love, Christ and Cain. The way we know that we're either sons of God or sons of the devil is we either look like God in our lives or we look like the devil. My son, 10-year-old son, uh, uh, Judah, for better or for worse, he he looks like me, right? You've probably seen him run around here with a little spiky hairdo. Um, I got the same got the same haircut we got the same brown eyes everybody else in our family got blue eyes me and him somehow we got the brown eyes rugged good looks just like his dad we know he gets the looks from his mom give her credit for that but he he does he does kind of look like me that's actually the way it's designed to go right we're supposed to look like our parents so let me just ask you in your life spiritually speaking do you look more like Cain or do you look more like Christ today Do you look more like Cain or do you look more like Christ? Spiritually speaking, is your life characterized by anger, jealousy, hatred, selfishness, or is it marked by sacrificial love for the good of others? John is saying to these churches in Ephesus 1,900 years ago, and he's saying to us today, hey guys, if you claim to follow Jesus, this is actually really important. Like This is not like a secondary doctrine. This is not something that we can just kind of take or leave in the Christian faith. This is actually foundational. This is actually core to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. How are you loving one another? So he's given us this picture of, of what hate is, Cain, the picture of Cain, so that we might now understand what love looks like. He's going to give us Christ. So he's given us Cain. Now he's going to give us Christ. Look at verse 16. It says this, By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we know what love is? Answer, it's not Phil Collins, it's Jesus Christ. If the greatest act of hatred is taking the most precious thing a person possesses, their very life, then it follows suit, then the greatest act of love is what? Giving your giving your life for the sake of someone else. In fact, 1 John 3.16, what we just read, actually uh, mirrors uh, John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, which is probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Many of you have it memorized by heart. I just want to put it on the screens for you. Now, let me just encourage you guys, read this with me. You probably know it again by heart. This is what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is love. This is love. This is the gospel. A life sacrificed for many lives. 
a sinless sacrifice for sinful people, innocence as payment for the guilty. While hate seeks another's harm, love seeks another's good. That's why we gather like we are today, every single Sunday, to worship, preach, proclaim that there exists a God in heaven, that though we were separated from him by our own sin, he loved us so much that he came into the world he lived a perfect, sinless life only to then turn around and lay down his very life as a payment of redemption to buy us back from the slavery that we sold ourselves into in order to make us new creations in Christ and to give us abundant life now and forever. This is love. And because we've been loved extravagantly by our resurrected king, what John is about to tell us is that we have now been empowered to demonstrate that very sort of love to those around us. See, the, the scriptures are abundantly clear that we are to love all, right? We're supposed to love the world. You ought to love your unsaved neighbor, classmate, coworker. But the scriptures are also very clear that this is a particular kind of love that we should demonstrate to our spiritual siblings, that there's a different kind of responsibility in how we are to, to act and react and care for one another inside of the family of God. You say, well, gosh, man, what, what does that kind of love look like? like? What does that entail? How do I know if I'm doing it, if I'm not doing it, am I being obedient or am I being disobedient as a follower of Jesus? Well, thankfully, John tells us what that kind of love, love looks like practically. Look at verse 17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And here's what I think John is after, and this is the second big truth of the day. Number two, real love is shown, not just spoken. Real love is shown and not just spoken. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I think in the church, by and large, we are really good at the speaking love part of the command, aren't we? We're, we're, man, we, we, we got the, the talking about it thing down pat, right? I mean, we'll, we'll tell folk till we're blue in the face, man, I, man, I'm praying for you, and sister, I'm praying for you, and bro, I love you, and I love you, sister, and man, call me if you need anything. Man, we got the love lingo down pat. We got it on lockdown. But how many times does that actually translate into meeting real physical or spiritual needs among our brothers and sisters in Christ? When someone is, is sick, man, hey, listen, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm conscious of it. I've tried to repent of it. I'm trying to get better at it. But instead of, when someone is walking through a difficult, painful season of life, instead of saying, hey, listen, if you need something, call me. Instead, say something like, hey, listen, Tuesday night, I'm bringing dinner. I'm coming. <laughs> Whether you want it or not, I'm coming. I see that you busted up your, your ankle. Guess what? You can't do your grass. Saturday, I'm coming with my mower. I know you just lost your job, and I see how bald your tires are. Hey, meet me at the tire shop Monday morning at 8 a.m. No, oh, man, I can't let you, I can't let you. Shut up. I'm going to breathe in your ear like Phil Collins. Show up at the tire, show up at the tire shop. Show up! I'm going to be there, and I don't want to be there alone. You just buried your spouse last month. You just buried a kid. Man, I know you're lonely and sad. Take the mask off. I'm coming over this week. We're just going to sit. We're going to watch a movie or we can sit and cry. We can do whatever you want, but you're not going to do it alone. Man, I've been, on the, I've been on the receiving end of this kind of love, and here's what I can tell you, man. It's, it's humbling. 
It strips you of false pride that you've got it all together, that you can do it all yourself because none of us can. It's a medicine for the heart and soul. Here's what it feels like, guys. It feels a lot like Jesus. So here's what I want you to get. Hatred isn't just murdering someone. Hatred can also be indifference to another's needs. Hatred can also, it doesn't have to be murder, it can also be inaction to someone else's pain. And so you've never murdered someone? Great, I'm happy for you. But are you being indifferent to a brother or sister's needs right now? Maybe someone sitting around you in this room right now. Are you inactive when you should be active in helping meet and love in a practical, real way? You listen to the words of Jesus in John 15, 13 on the screens where Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And so John has now contrasted hate with love for us. I want to give you the contrast on the, on the screen so you can just kind of see them together. Hate lead, and just kind of, again, self-inventory time for all of us. Hate leads to anger, jealousy, murder, indifference, and inaction. While Christ-like love leads to compassion that leads to sacrificial action. There's a man named uh, Ernest Gordon. True story. Was uh, a Scottish officer in World War II. He and nine of his comrades were captured, became prisoners of wars uh, by the Japanese. They were put in a death labor camp where they were actually building a train track through the jungles of Thailand and, and Myanmar. And he tells a story of, of, he was there for three and a half years, of how brutal that place became. The torture that they endured was unspeakable, the things that the captors would do to them. I couldn't even tell you from the stage because they've got kids in the room. Uh, at one point in time, uh, 500 soldiers would die for every mile of track that was laid. So it became a survival of the fittest, friends turning on friends, friends murdering one another, fight over small rations of food. It was a place of death and chaos and fear. In earnest, Gordon was not a believer, but there were three events inside of that death camp that absolutely changed his life. The first one was he had a friend that he noticed that began to become more weak and emaciated as they would work on the railroad every single day. And one day his friend collapsed and, and died right there on the work scene. And so they went back home, went back to the camp, and they found out that he had actually been given all of his rations to his sick friend. He literally starved himself to death to save his friend. And the man was a Christian. Ernest became sick himself. They moved him into what they called the death house where there was no hope for these inmates. They were, they were beyond hope. They just they put him there so that they could die. And there were two other soldiers who were also Christians, his friends, who came and began to set up camp by his bed in the death house. And so night and day, 24 hours around the clock, they began to hand feed him and give him water and clean his sores. Miraculously, Ernest beat the odds and he survived that. He got out of the death house. There was one more event that was impactful for him. One day they were out working on uh, the railroad and at the end of their shift, their captor did the, the tool count and there were, they were missing a shovel. So he flew into a rage and he began to scream and he said, somebody better tell me who took the shovel. There was silence. So he picked up his rifle and he began to scream, all die, all die. He's going to begin to execute all of the soldiers and finally one man raised his hand and stepped forward and said, I took the shovel. 
And he flew into a rage and he literally beat the man to death with a shovel. They took his body back to the camp. They did a recount and they discovered that there was no shovel missing. There was only a miscount. Now that man was innocent. That he gave his life to spare the life of all of his friends. This had an enormous impact on Ernest. He began to study the Gospels. He began to see the beautiful teachings of Jesus about self-sacrificial love. He became a follower of Christ in that death camp. He actually survived. One of the few that survived it went back to Scotland, became a pastor, wrote a book. You can find it. It's called The Miracle on River Kwai. He just died in 2002. But here's what I want you to see from all of that. What convinced Ernest Gordon of the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't a sermon it wasn't a worship song or a seminary lecture. It was love in action. It's exactly what John is talking about right here. Just sacrificial, reckless, nonsensical love. And Gordon went, that's not normal. That's supernatural. And I need that in my life. And he found it in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what John is exhorting us to. Hey, love each other with a sacrificial love just like Jesus loved you. This is a mark that you actually know and trust and follow Jesus. Continues on in verse 19, John says this, by this, by what? By the way we love each other. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, what about that odd phrase there? Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. This is kind of a tricky verse, difficult to interpret. A lot of scholars kind of debate it. Um, here, here's what I, what I think kind of the most basic meaning of this is. I think what John is saying is we don't, we don't naturally have hearts that are inclined to love like this on our own, do we? I mean, maybe you do. I don't. Most of us don't have a, naturally have hearts that are inclined to self-sacrifice, to love in this way. What comes naturally to most of us is actually anger, revenge, hatred, indifference, inaction, self-focus. But God, John is saying, is giving us, he's in the process of giving us a new heart, his heart, which is greater than our heart, and his heart empowers us to love in a way that's not natural to us. More, more than that, when our hearts experience doubt, anybody else wrestle with doubt in your life? Just go ahead and raise your hand. You wrestle with any kind of doubts in your life. All right, that's like 60% of you, 40% of you are liars and need to get right with the Lord. But man, that just doubts, man, that we, is God good? Is God there? Does God really, does God really, can he really love someone like, am I really a Christian? What John is saying is, man, in those moments, we remind ourselves that God is greater even than our heart's doubts. He's in the process of replacing our hearts with his heart, right? We can look to the cross. We can look to the empty tomb of Jesus and assure our hearts that we belong to him, not based on our own performance or our own merits, but on the performance of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That allows our hearts to live in freedom, to love sacrificially and freely because we have a Savior who has enabled us to do that by giving us his own heart. And that's truth number three that I want you to see this morning. God empowers us to love as he loves. Don't miss that. That is huge, church. God empowers us to actually love the way that he loves. Now, what's the secret sauce to loving this way? Look at verse 24. Whoever keeps his 
commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. Here it is. Here's the secret. By the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So what John is saying is, hey, listen, God knows that you can't love this way on your own. And so he's actually giving you his heart by literally putting his spirit inside of you. By indwelling you with the Holy Spirit. Like, how incredible is that? And God loves it so much. He's like, I know you can't do this on your own, so I'm going to give you my heart by putting my spirit inside of you so then through you, with my spirit, you can love the world the way that I've loved you. So John, are you, man, are you telling me that even when I have doubt in my spiritual life, even when my flesh kind of rears its ugly head in selfishness or anger, that I can look to the cross and be reminded that God's heart is becoming my heart and that I have the very Holy Spirit of God inside of me, empowering me to love others the way that he has loved me, even amidst all of my failures and doubts, the answer is yes. This is an incredible promise. John has one more beautiful promise he's going to give us, and then we'll be done. Look at verse 22. John says this. And whatever we ask, he's talking about prayer here. Whatever, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Hand in glove, right? We believe in the son we love one another as an outflow, as an evidence of that life change, just as he has commanded us. Now, did you catch what he said on the front end of that? John says, ask God for whatever you want, and you'll receive it. Now, let me ask you this. Is this a, a blanket promise that whatever we ask God for, he has to give us? Is that what you think John means there? God, I want a brand-new, jacked-up Ford Bronco. Boom, there it is. God, help me marry the hot cheerleader in my class. God, help me land that job that pays a bazillion trillion dollars a year. Is that the promise? Well, obviously not. Some of you have tried to pray those prayers, right? I have too. I think we have to understand this promise in context. John is saying, listen, as God gives us his heart, as he places his spirit inside of us, we begin to want what he wants. See, we, we begin to pray in alignment with his will. God, help Help me love my wife well today. God, help me, help me point my kids to Jesus this week. God, help me love my classmates at school or my coworkers at work in a, in a way that they can touch, taste, smell, and see the goodness of God in me so that they might be drawn to you. Do you think God wants to honor those kinds of prayers? Of course he does. Of course he does. Now, I, I would also say, just to kind of go back to the, the silly prayers, I would encourage you, don't, don't even shy away from those. Because right? maybe he does want you to marry the hot cheerleader who loves Jesus in your class, right? Worked for me. I got to marry the hot swimmer in college and love Jesus. Still praying about the Ford Bronco. You guys pray with me. Let's, uh, Lord, we just claim it in your name. No, I'm, just, I'm kidding. Don't strike me dead. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Just like any good parent. Listen, no good parent says yes to everything, Right? Why does no good parent say yes to everything? Because they can see things their kids can't yet see. Our father is the same way, right? Hey, Daddy, can I have ice cream for dinner every night? No. Can I have it occasionally as a treat? Yes. <laughs> right. God is, God is the same way. And yet John is saying, hey, listen, uh, believers, like little children, crawl up into the lap of your heavenly father every single day and ask boldly. 
And as his heart becomes your heart, he delights to answer your prayers. And so, friend, let me just encourage you, pray ferociously. And I've said this before, who can interrupt a king at 2 a.m. for a glass of water? Who, who can do that? Can the palace guard do that? No, he'll lose his head. Can the court jester do that? No. Can the palace may do that? No. The only person who can wake a king at 2 a.m. for a cup of water is his kid. And so family, I just want to say, understand this. We are welcome in our Father's presence. He invites us in. He desires us to come into his room and bring our request to him. He delights to answer us. You see, church, I fear that oftentimes we see God work little in our lives precisely because we pray little. Or we pray little, weak, puny prayers to God. So let me give you the last truth. Last truth, number four. Christian, we've got to learn to pray big prayers to a great big God. We've got to learn to start praying great big prayers to a great big God. And friend, ask him to help you love others generously, sacrificially, the way that you've been loved by Christ himself. For their good, for our testimony, for our witness in the world, for the glory of the king. What I want to do right now is I want to carve out uh, just, I don't know, two, three minutes for a time of prayer and reflection. We're going to have some prayer prompts on the screen. I fear oftentimes we just kind of like, we have a teaching like this, and then it's kind of like we rush out the door. We don't really have time to apply these things to our lives. And so what I want to do today is just carve out a few minutes. The band's going to play silently. I want to encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal things in your life based on the text, the Word of God that we just read that he would confirm and affirm certain things in your life and steps that you need to take in your spiritual walk this week. And so you just pray right where you are for two or three minutes. I'm going to come off the stage, and then I'll come up and close this in just a few minutes. Father, would you, would you help us to walk in the light as you are in the light? God, would you, would you grant us the capacity to love in the way that you've called us to love because naturally none of us, none of us can love this way in our own flesh, in our own strength. God, we need you. We need your spirit in us to live this out. So God, we repent for the ways that we haven't loved you well enough the ways that we have maybe been indifferent or inactive which is just another form of hatred to those around us who are hurting or in need God would you help us to become sensitive to those around us so that we might love well so that the aroma of Jesus would be present in and through our lives every single day that we live, not just when we come here on Sunday morning, God, but when we step back into our apartment complex or neighborhood or college campus or whatever it is, Monday through Saturday, that people would see in us a kind of love that would be inexplicable from a human perspective and that they would have to look at us and say, man, there is something that's not normal about the way they love there's something supernatural about the way they love one another. God, and help us love that way, not so that 
people would think that we're awesome or pat us on the back. Help us love that way, ultimately, so that they could see you in us and be drawn to your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask and we pray all those things in his beautiful name.